Hello and welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. So a bit of housekeeping before I introduce my guest today. By now, we're all acutely aware just how much we're all living through what the Chinese refer to as interesting times. For the first time, I can honestly say we're all actually aware of being in the same boat together. To help meet this moment, I'm going to introduce a few small changes in the structure of the podcast. I want to speak about that a little bit right now. Until now, I've been recording long-form conversations with guests, and then I've tried to break up those conversations into a series of digestible mini-episodes, roughly 15 or 20 minutes each. And while many of you have shared with me how much you appreciate the manageable length of these episodes, I do need to make a change in that production process for a few reasons. One, enough of you have expressed to me the wish to have the conversation available in total, and that has had me considering this shift for a while. But the second reason relates to the shelter-in-place mandates we're all facing. Like many of you, my ability to work and support myself has been significantly disrupted, if not evaporated. In an effort to streamline the production end of running the podcast and thereby reducing my production costs, I'll be continuing to release two episodes a month, but the first episode will be simply the long-form conversation with one of my outstanding guests. This will be similar to the content you're used to, only you'll receive the entire conversation all at once. But the second episode, which will arrive two weeks after the interview, This will be a solo cast reflection where I try to summarize my guests' most salient takeaways and further suggest how how those takeaways can apply directly to your practice. So this will be a two-part programming. First, long-form, in-depth conversations with a wonderful guest. And this will be followed by a solo cast reflection from me. And this shift will take effect after the four-part series with today's guest, Locke Kelly. Now, possibly there is a third monthly episode in the mix, too, but I think that I'll speak to that a little bit later. As always, it's my hope that these conversations and reflections will provide a direct support to your practice and teaching of yin yoga and meditation. Now, another shift I've made in light of the COVID-19 pandemic is the access to my online courses and content. Terry and I have both been discussing how we might best offer support to our communities right now. Given the immediate and possible long-term demands of social distancing, we plan to produce a few new online courses for your ongoing study and practice. Information about those courses will be forthcoming soon, so stay in touch. And if you want to subscribe to my newsletter to get up-to-date information, please do that at www.joshsummers.net. But for your immediate support, we have steeply discounted our four online courses, the Sublime Quartet. This covers yin yoga, yin meditation, TCM, and yang yoga. Individually, these, each of these courses list at about $125 each, but we'll be offering them for the next several months at $49 each, or if you'd like, you can, save, you can purchase the Super Save bundle at $149 for the complete quartet. 
These online courses are the in-depth preparatory courses that students complete prior to attending our live training modules. They cover the functional elements of yin yoga, yin meditation, TCM, or traditional Chinese medicine, and yang yoga. There's a link for you in the show notes for this offer under the Sublime Quartet. But please hear me on this next offer for what it is. We both, we, neither one of us want finances to be a limiting factor for anyone. So if you are in financial distress, as many are, and if you're unable to afford the fee for these courses, simply send us an email requesting access, and we will be happy to extend these courses to you free of charge. This offer is inspired by the concept of dana in Buddhism. Dana, the Pali word for generosity, is a practice of offering and receiving generosity from teachers to students and students to teachers. It's really the heart principle of symbiotic support. So I aspire to make my teaching as available as possible regardless of financial constraints. And at various points in my own journey, I have been the recipient of countless offerings of dana, which have supported my access to practices and teachings exactly at the times when my pockets were empty. So if you are in need and would like to access the Sublime Quartet, just drop me an email at info at yinyogaschool.com. That's info at yinyogaschool.com. And it will be my pleasure to extend you free access to these courses and study materials. In fact, nothing has been more gratifying to me over the last few weeks than to receive emails from all over the globe from yin yoga and meditation enthusiasts expressing their gratitude for this access. Terry and I are committed to supporting you to the best our resources will allow us. So please don't hesitate to reach out. We're just an email away at info at yinyogaschool.com. Okay, now for today's guest, Locke Kelly. Locke Kelly is an author, meditation teacher, psychotherapist, and founder of the Open Hearted Awareness Institute. Locke's life work is to help people access awakening as the next natural stage of human development. He offers in-person retreats, workshops, and online video and audio courses. And he served on the New York Insight Meditation Teachers Council, studied extensively with Mingo Rinpoche, and was invited to teach direct realization by Adyashanti. Locke has collaborated with neuroscientists at Yale, UPenn, and NYU in the study of how awareness training can enhance compassion and well-being. Locke teaches what is sometimes referred to as a direct path teaching. From the very beginning on this kind of path, the teacher points out to you your direct true nature. And from that initial glimpse of a recognition, the student simply practices stabilizing in that realization. Years ago, when I met Ajahn Amaro, the Thai forest teacher, he used to say practice facilitates a paradigm shift from a sense of self defined by me and my problems to a paradigm of the Buddha knowing Dharma. What Ajahn Amaro meant was that practice is a way of shifting out of our personality and thought-based being to a more open field of awareness-based being, whereby our identity is defined by awareness itself, and our identity is no longer defined by some pattern experience within awareness. Locke speaks to this shift in simple, secular terms, and I'm truly honored to host him on the podcast. Without further ado, I now bring you 
Locke Kelly. Okay, today I am with Locke Kelly. Locke, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Josh. Great to be here. So, um, in thinking about how to introduce you, I have to say your name is kind of a hot name on the meditation scene. Scene. Um, I had not heard of you until last fall when a colleague of mine in Finland mentioned your name. And then shortly thereafter, almost synchronistically, um, you appeared on Sam Harris's podcast, which I found very illuminating. Um, I then got a few of your books and I've been working with some of your approaches. And, um, and I've seen you on a whole host of other podcasts, too. So, we're, we're glad to get you here. Um, and as a word of thanks, uh, I was trying to think how to introduce this, but uh, when I graduated from undergraduate university, my, uh, my head, I had kind of a hangover of education where mm-hmm. I'd been exposed to all these different systems of knowledge, and I could not make sense of how they all held together mm-hmm. until I read Ken Wilber. Mm-hmm. And Ken Wilber is this great integral theorist who brought it all together yeah. and just sort of cleared my <clears throat> headache. In my meditative life... I was exposed to all sorts of meditative traditions that created a massive knot of confusion and, and sort of meditative hangover for me until I really came to your work where you mm-hmm. clearly kind of, you have your own uh, kind of perspective and, and angle on things, but you're, you're able to include and put, to, put all these different practices together and show how they can work together um, in, in terms of an overall path. So I want to thank you for that. Yeah, um, sure. And... Beyond the interest in meditation, I'd say we, I think we share a biographical piece where uh, I think our, maybe our spiritual journey both began between the pipes on an ice hockey <laughs> Okay, great. <laughs> nice. So um, maybe you just want to start with a little bit about your background, um, like <clears throat> from, from the goaltender to sort of enlightened meditation teacher. How did, they, how did you get there? Yeah, I mean, I can. I'll try to do a short little version because I want to jump into the the heart of it. Yeah, experience and uh, you know, just um, you know, I think more impo- more importantly than the uniqueness is just to say that I was a uh, you know a, a bumbling kid, you know, just like everyone else, just going through you know high school and uh, <clears throat> you know trying to make sense of the world and having same issues as everyone else. And, you know, gradually I just started to be curious about certain things. And I had um, some ADD and some dyslexia. So it was a real relief to play sports and music. That would often be a a place where I felt connected to my head, heart, and uh, body. Uh, And so... Yeah, in sports, I discovered uh, like being in the zone or being in a flow state Mm -hmm. through playing different sports. Um, And it was there that I uh, started to be introduced to a book that was given to me by a teammate, uh, which called Zen and the Art of Archery. Mm Mm-hmm. And that started me to, as soon as I read that, I thought, oh, well, that's kind of, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. And um, I had learned to do it intentionally uh, in my own way. And then to discover there's a whole culture and it's valued and it's not just about sports. It's about, you know, sports is a doorway to um, peace of mind, happiness, joy, 
connection with others uh, that was a great um, you know impetus and uh, motivation for me great yeah the um, that was another seminal book for me I had a jazz teacher in high school who would read us selections of Zen and the Art of Archery and mm. followed, following that he'd say don't play be the sound Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to set me on my way um, now, in, in sort of the development of meditation practice in the West, John Kabat-Zinn is largely credited as, as sort of secularizing the practice of mindfulness, which I know you refer to as directed mindfulness. And it seems like you are kind of at the forefront of secularizing another version of mindfulness that leads mm-hmm. to awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess maybe to start, could you maybe give a a general operative definition of what awakening is and then how does your approach to effortless how, how would you define effortlessness and how does that lead to the experience or taste of awakening sure um so i mean the wisdom traditions um seem to be about awakening rather than just stress management so even the secularizing of some buddhist practices seem to focus on initial uh, relaxation and focusing, which leads to stress reduction and calming of the body and mind. Um, But that is traditionally done in order to go to the next stage, which is awakening. Mm -hmm. So um, awakening, you know, I see it in terms of uh, the human being lineage is what I call it, or human consciousness. It's not um, just for the uh, Olympic athlete of meditation that the premise from this tradition um, of awakened consciousness is that it's already inherent within us. It's not a skill that needs to be developed. And so there's this possibility of shifting from a small operating system, which we take for granted, into a larger, more holistic, more pervasive, embodied, open-hearted, awakened operating system, um, which is similar to the way that I experience being in the zone or being in a flow state. Right. So, in some ways, awakening, I would say, uh, to make it simple, is moving from a small sense of self or a small thought-based mind. So the feeling and the function is, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And literally, we feel as if there's an organizing, managing part of ourselves in the middle of our head, looking out of our eyes. So literally, uh, we feel as if there's a location that's small, thought-based, and gets creates a seat of the self where different parts of ourselves, the judge and the uh, manager and the one who's trying to control or the one who's trying to be kind, kind of sits in that seat. But they're all small, separate, thought-based parts of us. Um, and awakening is uh, the shift out of that into a dimension of awareness a dimension of uh, intelligence and a dimension of 
self or identity that is more awareness-based. It immediately feels more spacious and pervasive, uh, more interconnected and loving. It's kind of dropped from head to heart space. And we've all experienced moments of it because it is natural. And the question is, can we know how to access it? And then not only on the cushion or in meditation, but how to shift into it, uh, be it, and then include all the other dimensions of our human uh, beingness, and then learn to walk and talk and live from this um, awakened, open-hearted uh, presence. Great. If I can just replay, like, make sure I heard that correctly. It, so you're, you're identifying kind of two different operating systems. One mm-hmm. that most people are functioning at, which yeah. is where the sense of self is identified with or relating to the kinds of thoughts and feelings and sensations the person is having. Mm-hmm. And then I think somewhere in one of your books you say that the, the second operating system is sort of embedded below that that first operating system. It's not that you have to develop it or grow it or attain it. You sort of, through various practices or, or glimpse practices, uncover it and recognize mm-hmm. it, that there's this other secondary operating system, which is more, as you're saying, defined by awareness mm-hmm. itself. It, it, the sense of self is referencing only awareness, not any particular feature or content or piece of awareness at that point. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's not that it's below, like covered over like a thing. It's, it's the subtlest dimension of consciousness, which awareness. So a baby is aware prior to developing thought or concepts. There's a certain natural inherent awareness that's just life force. And then we develop this thought-based uh, ability to split off and compare and contrast and know what a green light and a red light is so that we can function. And then the what is an ego function or the function of us as a human creature um, creates an ego identity out of the ego function. And literally it's a habit of thought going to thought, going to emotion, creating a contracted felt sense, usually in our head, but some for some people it's in your body if it's more emotional or, uh, but it's like a small cloud of thought and feeling that feels like me, and it it's a subject-object. It's a detached, uh, uh, separate feeling that feels alienated or separate or can't quite connect, and that literally, instead of living in that cloud, we can drop below it or shift to the side of it or above it or behind it to discover that we're also the sky. Mm. And that not only are we the sky, but we're aware from the sky. So that immediately feels open-minded, open-hearted. But then that sky dimension, which is subtler awake awareness, is inherent within our bodies, within the cloud, so that we actually feel more embodied from an awareness-based knowing. So we literally feel our... uh, our torso from our torso, or we feel our knee from our knee. We don't feel it from our head or even from a detached mindful witness. Mm -hmm. Uh, We literally are able to be, by being 
more awareness-based, we're more embodied. Mm-hmm. Now, as, you're, as I'm listening to you, um, I'm reminded of a kind of a, a thought issue that has been coming up for me since last year. I, I don't know if it occurred when I started reading your stuff or if it was sort of just synchronistic to that, but um, oftentimes when there's a description of that awakened state, yeah. and you say, that, say something, you are not a cloud within the sky, you are the sky. Mm-hmm. That can sound like an absolute statement around, about objective reality. Mm-hmm. And, and for me and uh, sort of other scientifically minded people or rationally minded people, that can also sound a little bit nonsensical in that, mm-hmm. you know, clearly, you know, there's a there's a there's a being, an organism here and a whole vast dimension of sky out there. And to say you were one of you were one with that uh, and you are that sounds crazy. But. I wonder what you think of this. My sense is that I think the, 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 the issue is that these, these contemplative traditions, when they speak like that, are really speaking about radical, direct, first-person subjective experience, not some sort of ontological or metaphysical or objective claim about reality. It's just what it feels like, what the direct, a radical felt sense of what it's like. Yes, I think we can, we can go with that. I mean, there's some level that you can start to be curious about perception on different subtler levels so that if I ask people, um, you know, when you, how many people when you walk into a room can tell if somebody's upset without looking at them. Hmm. And, you know, there's some perception that going on on a subtler level that's not fit, you know, not of the five senses. Um, and, you know, if you take an electron microscope, if you look with your eyes, you're going to see a physical creature that's different. If you look with an electron microscope, there's no difference between your body and the air around it. There's molecules moving and there's no boundary. And then, obviously, if you use the metaphor of uh, quantum physics, then you have um, connection at a distance that can influence each other. However... It, you know, it, we don't even need to go there yeah. because it's what it, it is what it feels like. Yeah, it literally feels like uh, you're 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 more open-minded and open-hearted. You feel not limited to your body. There on a sense of space, and then also on a sense of there's some connection to a flower when you are aware of the flower, you feel like you and the flowers share some some sense of um, connection that is like, you know, walking into a room and feeling somebody. There's, there's a interconnection. And interestingly, you know, that's the word uh, emptiness, which is, you know, um, which is the big word in Buddhism, which is, um, it doesn't mean empty glass. Um, In even Theravada Buddhism, it means there's no thing that has an independent uh, existence, so everything's interdependent. So a, um, a flower is not a flower by itself. It has earth, water, air, sun. There's all of that is interdependent so 
emptiness means interdependent means interconnection. So when you experience emptiness, it's not like the absence or void. It's like you're experiencing, oh, everything's interconnected. Right, uh, and that's a, and that's a, that word is really charged, and and people trip up on it all the time because I think most people when they hear the word emptiness think of a kind of psychological emptiness where they're that's just, right. they're in a void of of nihilistic hell you know, in a that's certain right. way, yeah, and, and spir- spiritual emptiness is as you're describing is much more of a, a kind of a radical intimacy, yes. mutual mutuality with everything, right? Yeah, and so that you know that you know that feeling of intimacy and mutuality interconnectedness, spaciousness, that's the feeling when, and your brain also shows those changes, you know, we can go into that a little later, but um, that there is less of a contracted self-referencing, there is less of a, um, a feeling of separate body, you know, versus environment. Um, and when, but the key is, regardless of that, you know, scientifically or ontologically, um, when you can shift into this awareness-based, embodied, open-hearted presence, you're more loving, you're less anxious, you're less depressed, you're less shame-based, you can be with the parts of you that are shame-based and fearful and anxious, you can be with others and less reactive, more intelligent, your actual synchronized gamma waves, which is basically your creativity is more in this effortless mindfulness style of meditation, rather than just being calm or uh, being reserved or non-reactive, you're actually more engaged, um, happy, there's a low level of bliss going on. So that's literally, you know, shows measurably. And it's pretty, pretty, pretty good. So <laughs> whatever, those are just like little markers of right. felt sense. So, yeah. I, you know, all that to say, yes, they're markers of felt sense, but they're not just meditation states. In other words, they're literally natural qualities that arise that you're not grasping after those qualities. You're going to the awareness-based knowing, which has no qualities. And when that you're aware from the awareness, then you're released from the knots that prevent this natural joy and well-being. Well, actually, I was with you until just the sort of the last, one of the last statements you just said, that awareness is uh, sort of uh, characterless or uh, content, what was the word? Content, yeah, it could be, you know, at its its pure form, pure awareness is uh, timeless, boundless, contentless, um, and attributeless, or something like around yeah, that. Like those, those qualities aren't. See, I, yeah. was, I thought you were about to say that the the love, the peace, the connection, yeah. all of that. I my sense was that it was actually intrinsic in the awareness. In other words, and this gets to the idea of a gradual path of development, yeah. where where most people, I think, when they start out meditation, think they have to do a lot of time on the cushion, a lot of time on retreats to gradually wear away their reactivity, gradually wear away their defilements and their hindrances and all the things that cause them neurotic pain to develop this perception of kind of the enlightened mind or the awakened mind. But you're pointing to kind of a a direct pointing out of that nature in the person. And within that nature, 
the love, the peace, the, the connection, the happiness, the joy, the bliss, whatever, are kind of all intrinsic to that. But they arise from it as as the yeah. So they arise from it as the expression of it. Mm-hmm. So there is a dimension where you unplug from the conditioning altogether, from the attempt to find love and bliss and and fight against, you know, negativity, hatred, anger, fear. And that whole conditioned cloud, there's some sense that for, it seems like three seconds to three minutes, you literally unplug into the contentless awareness that's already been aware, that's always been aware as a baby and is where you're aware from when you're not concentrating, when you're not trying to own the awareness. And then the arising, the, what's called the non-dual shift or the, is when awareness is almost felt as if, oh, I see, vibration sensation is made of awareness. So there's almost this feeling of interdependence. There's the emptiness of form is emptiness, emptiness is form. So that first realization is the contentless this pure awareness, but that's not the goal. Some systems make that the goal. Some systems say you can't get to that. Um, and this is just that is just saying that's the halfway point. That's the what I call the U-turn, the Y-O-U turn, where you awareness can become aware of the pure awareness, but then from the pure awareness, it remains the ground of being. But then it starts arising as expressions that are un, unbound by the ego's defenses and attempts to um, own them or grasp them or, or create a meditator. Okay, I'll pause the conversation there for today. And perhaps over the coming weeks, in your own meditation, you can explore how the sense of a meditator takes shape in your own meditation process. That is, how a little you, somewhere in your head, tries to control the meditation process. What would it mean to simply relax that control of the small self? What would it mean to rest into an open awareness that knows things just as they are? For more on La Kelly's teachings, please check out his website, www.lockkelly.org, and also his recent wonderful book, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. Links for both of those are found in the show notes. And until next time, I wish you a safe refuge in place. I'll see you in the next episode.